Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. And I'm Timothy Plain. Each week we discuss filmmaking topics and give you our point of view on them, not as experts, but just as two filmmakers trying to figure it out for ourselves. So this week we have another uh, guest, a filmmaker, a local DP, um, I don't know, do you, do you like to be called a shooter, Fraser, or is that below you? Do you like DP? Uh, I prefer DP. I mean, sometimes I do some shooting, but mostly I'm... <laughs> I prefer the uh, the job where I'm managing a team to do the job and not just a random guy with a camera on my shoulder. Yeah, right. is that what a shooter is? Just somebody who like uh, operates yeah. a camera? I think shooters shoot news and lowbrow corporate Baseball jobs. Baseball games. I do yeah. a little bit of lowbrow corporate jobs, but I don't tell anybody. Yeah, lowbrow corporate jobs is what I shoot mostly, um, so that's why I usually go by shooter. Anyways, uh, Fraser Bradshaw <laughs> is our guest today. Welcome, Fraser. Hello, hello. Welcome, Fraser. Very happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you, man. And uh, yeah, I'm sure people who work in the Bay Area have probably heard your name. I mean, you've been here a long time. Um, but yeah, why don't you tell us about it rather than me telling you about it, because you are you, and you should in- do your own little background so yeah what we always have people do is do like a little one minute bio just to introduce themselves to our audience so go fraser give us your bio all right well um i grew up in alabama and at age 13 i knew i wanted to get the hell out of alabama and i eventually did get the hell out of alabama and i moved straight to san francisco to go to the san francisco art institute and i had no interest in filmmaking but i fell in love with what projected light looked like and i became an experimental filmmaker and I made a slew of 16 millimeter experimental films in school. And uh, I owned a 16 millimeter camera. So I started shooting my friends' films for free. And I got out of school and wasn't sure what to do and started shooting other people's independent films for free. And then I got a better camera. And then I shot more films. And then I started making more films of my own. And then I ended up here. I think that's about it. <laughs> I just started making films, shooting films with people, and then I ended up shooting stuff for a living. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty, that's pretty much accurate, how it happened. Right? That's funny. Do people still make experimental films? Oh, yeah. Lots of people do. I make some myself. What's what? What's the experiment? Is it just is that just like a, a name for just doing whatever you want? And you're like, there's no narrative form. It's whatever I feel. Or is there like a real experiment happening? Like, I'm just trying to figure this aspect out. Well, and something I've been told is that if you see the word science in anything, then it's probably not science. And so experimental <laughs> films are kind of like that. The experiment is in just trying some new things with the medium. Of course, you know, we live in a postmodern world where pretty much everything has already been tried with the medium. So you're not, you're only really doing your own experiments. You're probably not doing any other experiments. But in a way, anytime you make a film, it's a series of experiments that are, some are going to work great and some are not. Yeah, that's true. I definitely feel like I go into each film with kind of like a theory. Like in this film, my theory is this is how you tell a story. And I have like all these ideas in my head. And then I come out the other end and I like, test my hypothesis and be like nope that was wrong okay so my theory did not hold true yeah um, experimental film you're you're doing stuff that um that you don't know is going to work and and trying some new form and i do a lot of that in my narrative filmmaking but i i come from a experimental film background have you done two feature films at this point 
Um, I have directed two feature films. I have yeah, shot directed. 16 feature films oh, as a DP. Um, and I am, I'm in the middle of production on a film I'm shooting and a producer on. And so this is my, um, aside from my own films, this is the second feature I've produced. Um, and I've also produced a feature doc. So your first feature as a director is Everything Strange and New? That is correct. And then where are you at in the process on Deep Sky? Deep Sky is all done, and it is going to premiere at Mill Valley Film Festival on October 7th. Okay, cool. Awesome. So it's, it's ready for the world to see. Yeah. Well, Ulrich, I want you to, to run this part of the conversation because we have questions about the success of Everything Strange and New and kind of like right. how you're feeling that cues you up for Deep Sky. Right. Well, here, let me just give a little bit of like a really slap job background on why I was so excited to talk to Frazier. Um, so we have a mutual friend, Jason Joseph, has been on the show. He was a camera op on Deep Sky. And he was basically just telling me, like, oh, yeah, you got to have Frasier on. You got to have Frasier on. He's like, oh, his first movie, like, oh, it's so successful. It played Sundance. Like, he made his money back on it, all these things. And I was like, oh, man, this sounds amazing. Like, I, don't, I hardly know any filmmakers who, um, A, have played at Sundance, and B, have actually gotten a return on their investment on their movie. Well, let me uh, just set, set a record straight here because yeah, I just forgot do. his story wrong because I have not made the money back on everything strange and new. <laughs> um, my distributor. <laughs> <laughs> essentially screwed me and this happens oh, no. with american distributors a lot um, but the distributor admitted to owing us money and then wouldn't pay it oh, and so gosh. we called our lawyer and we said can we sue him can we sue them it's a company but it's really you know there's a guy at the top of the company can we sue the company and the producers i mean the, the lawyer said oh yeah we can sue him and we'll win and he will be able to show on paper that he has no money and you will never get any and you will have a bunch of legal fees that you never get paid back because he never pays you anything so i'd advise you not sue him and so we haven't so i've uh i've pulled the rights back and now i have the rights and i'm self-distributing now do you want to put this uh you know distributor on blast because you know so other filmmakers can avoid having the same thing happen to them or are you trying to like you know not out them for the terrible shit they did to you like oh, no, they, they're money. they're they're well known for treating filmmakers poorly but i i gotta say that there are a lot of pretty much all american distributors are known for treating filmmakers very poorly um you know i've a, a film feature doc i shot that did very well it was distributed by a an a-list company and they get no money out of them. A, a film that has done very well. If, if this doc didn't make money, then independent docs really just can't make money. Um, and this big company, they don't pay out. So, uh, um, but anyway, my distributor was um, IndiePix. I don't really okay. mind outing them. They owe me money. I know I will never see it. <laughs> if I thought I would ever see it, then I wouldn't out them. But I'm I feel very confident I will never see any of that money. Um, and I'm not the only one. I've talked to a lot of other filmmakers who have had bad experiences with them. Right. Well, what's funny is usually like they owe you money, but they contend that they don't. And they like have all the proof that they don't. And they never tell you that they actually should be paying you. You know, usually that that part is what happens. Because I know like tons of filmmakers who, you know, got their movie distributed for, through a distribu distributor or whatever. And it seems like they should be getting money back, but no matter how much it sells, it's always the same thing where it's like, oh, the expenses are more than um, right. the, the profits or whatever. Yeah, that's what's happening with this other doc I was talking about. 
But in this case, um, our, we had a five-year deal and the five years were up and they probably told us they owed us money and would eventually pay it so that we wouldn't take the film back. And they oh. never did. And so we gave them a year and they still didn't. And then we took the film back. So that was like a technique for them to keep making money off of you, even though when they should have That's been my hunch. done. Yeah. I mean, why yeah. else would they do that? Yeah. Yeah. They had it streaming on Hulu and <laughs> that's so funny. Um, they were making some money. I don't know. It, wow. I'm sure it wasn't a lot, but they, they, if, right. if I had all the money they made, I, I'm sure I would have turned a small profit. Wow. Crazy. Um, and do you mind talking about like, uh, just how, how much you, um, put up for that first movie? Like what was the, what the budget was and how you raised the money? You know, raising money is such a funny thing. It's the question, like, how did you finance your film? It's like, it's, it's always different. It's always a crapshoot. Um, in this particular case, um, my dead great grandmother, uh, left a small trust to my mom and it paid for me to go to college. And I didn't spend very much money going to college. And meanwhile, my little brother milked that thing and went to college forever. <laughs> and I approached the trust and said, this is a very important next step in my career. Would you give me $40,000? And they said, okay. And I was like, what? You're just, okay, great. So um, the seed money came from my dead great grandmother who probably would have really hated my film <laughs> because she was a <laughs> old lady from Alabama. That's um, funny. And it was not really the kind of movie that old ladies from Alabama like, but uh, she left this trust and I got $40,000 out of it. And I was just like, what the hell? I'm going to try to make a feature for $40,000. I know that's crazy, but I'm going to try to do it. And I was just moving forward as if that was possible. And it's, not really possible, but I was going to try it. Um, and the universe just kind of like saw that I was going to do it and helped me out. And a producer friend introduced me to an, an EP. Um, and he came in with what at the end of the day and amounted to a hundred thousand dollars. Um, and another friend put up 15,000 and I ended up with a um, $155,000 film all said and done. Wow. That's amazing. That's, uh, that's like every filmmaker's wish. It's like you get some money, you know, and it's amazing that you got it and you know, it's not nearly enough. And then somehow you get a guardian angel like flies in and gets you the rest of it that you need. Um, I'll just yeah. like want to state for the, the world. I wish that would happen to me right now, please. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> the key is you have to just start doing it. If you just keep like, waiting for the universe to send you that angel investor or in basically what what i learned is you can't wait on a rich person you don't even know to give you permission to make your film you have to figure out how to do it right and that's that's essentially the story of both my films is i just decided that i was not gonna wait anymore i was gonna make it happen wow that's awesome I feel like that's like advice I should be taking myself. I mean, I'm, I'm in the middle of raising money for my movie right now and I'm in the very beginning stages of it and I haven't gotten that much, but I've gotten some. So it's like encouraging, mm -hmm. but you know, it's also at that point where it's so little of what I need to make it that it feels like, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm waiting, even though I'm not really waiting, but I'm trying to do things to like accelerate the process. But yeah, it's interesting to hear the story of like, yeah, just 
start to try to go out and make the movie for this amount, even though I know I can't do it. And then, oh, there's the rest of it. That's that's really cool. Right. Well, you have to you have to believe that you can do it <laughs> because the universe won't take care of you unless you actually believe that you can do it. Right, right, right. That's the, the terrible irony. You can't hedge your bets. You have to be all in. It's like that scene in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. And there's that like walkway. And you have to just trust that it's there. <laughs> the leap of faith take or whatever. step onto it. The leap yeah. of faith. Yeah. yeah. That's what it is, Ulrich. I love that it part is. of that movie so much. It makes me happy to hear Except it. Except he did throw pebbles. Remember, he did throw pebbles and he saw that it was there. So it's... Right. Was a, a true leap but, of faith. But he took the first step without throwing the pebbles, right? And then he threw did he? them. I think he did. Oh, I, I don't, don't remember. Know. Nerds, check for Details. us, please. Um, anyways... <laughs> Uh, I, I don't want to spend too much time on, uh, your first feature just because I want to get into like what you learned from it and all those things. Um, but the one thing I do want to ask about is getting into Sundance because I mean, you know, you got into Sundance, what was it? 2009 was the year or yeah, 2009. So how did that happen? Did you just apply and get in or did you have some kind of secret connection? Like you got to tell us how'd you got, how you got into Sundance? Well, Sundance is a, with every festival, knowing somebody is not going to get you in unless you're you really know somebody but knowing somebody will get your film seen by somebody who matters and i really feel like that is a huge part of how i got in um, i had had a short that had played at sundance in 2000 um, and a, a festival programmer um, had let the shorts programmer at sundance know hey you really got to check out this film and so my short got in because another programmer had alerted the Sundance programmer about it. So I had enough of a relationship with this programmer who was now a feature programmer um, to be able to call him up and, or not call him up, but email him and say, hey, uh, remember me? I made that short like nine years ago. Uh, well, I made a feature and he said, great, send it my way. And so it, it went into the person who matters should watch it pile. Wow, there you go. And so it didn't, like, so, so Sundance gets like 12,000 films entered every year, and there's <laughs> no way that any small team of people can watch all of them. So they have layers of pre-screeners, and they claim that all of their pre-screeners are very qualified. And and I don't doubt that because it's Sundance. I'm sure that the, the eyes on any given film are qualified, but... You know, when you have that kind of sheer number, um, you just you have to make it through so many levels of people who might be super skilled programmers. I mean, super skilled uh, film viewers, but not people who happen to like your film. Right. And if they don't, then it doesn't get to the next level. And if it's got to go through five levels to get to a senior programmer and you can cut out those five levels and go straight to a senior programmer, then that's better. And that was what I was able to do is, is send it straight to a senior programmer. Yeah. Like he probably didn't watch it, but he had his assistant watch it. Um, so there was still one level. I don't, I'm guessing. Right. Right. Um, but it, that's really it is just trying to cut through some of the, the levels of other people who have to like your film all the way up. Yeah, and then of all the films that got accepted into Sundance of the features that year that you know about, did they all get distribution? No, the the myth that everything at Sundance gets distribution is, um, in fact, a myth. Um, I would 
if I had to wager a guess, and I am guessing, you know, Google this, um, I would think that about half the films that play at Sundance get distribution. My film did not get bought at Sundance. It got sold about four or five months after Sundance was over. And did you get any money on your on your sale, or was it all just um, back end that you would get your recruitment? We got a whopping five thousand dollars <laughs> sale, oh, there you go. and we gave That's a thousand. Money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we gave a thousand dollars to uh, the sales agent, which was twice as much as we technically owed him. Um, and then I think we bought some uh, errors and emissions insurance, and I don't really remember what happened to the rest. It probably went to the EP who had put in a hundred thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars for a hundred and fifty thousand dollar film. That is crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's it's actually not unfortunately not super abnormal or at least it wasn't <laughs> right. then. Yeah, I I don't I I mean you hear a lot of times movies just getting nothing up front, you know. So the fact that you got anything mm -hmm. is is nice, but yeah, I mean it really puts in per per perspective. It's like, yeah, when you're running out and making a 100 plus thousand dollar movie, yeah, you're you're really fighting an uphill battle to get your return. That's pretty pretty tough. But it's not only that the movie was in Sundance, but like, uh, and I got this off of IMDb, so sorry if this is not right, but it also got an International Film Critics Prize, the Cinevision Award in Munich, and was nominated for two Gotham Awards and an Independent Spirit Award. Like all those things combined are pretty impressive from my point of view. Yeah, it, it got all of that. And um, it, it was in distribution by the time it got the Gotham and Spirit nominations. Mm. So those things didn't help get distribution. Oh, no, no, it was already in distribution yeah. by the by that gotcha. time. Um, gotcha. I'm sure that the other prizes um, did help. Um, you know, there were some validation that um, the film could be trusted for an audience to like, I suppose. But you know, the uh, the audience award is the thing that guarantees you the distribution at a film festival. A, a jury prize is like, yeah, yeah, the jury or the like the elite viewer of films and they have much more sophisticated taste than the average Joe. And you're actually trying to sell the movie to the average Joe because you need, you know, um, 2 million, 3 million eyes on a film in order to make any real money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the audience award is really what you want, huh? That's interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not very prestigious, but it's the thing that distributors want to see. Huh? Yeah. Nice. Well, given that all the, the, awards and festivals that you made it in with that film like did going into your second film where did that make you super confident kind of like i got this i know what i'm doing everyone um, loves me it made me confident that i could make a great film it did not make me confident that i was gonna get another sundance or i was gonna win any more prizes or that anybody was gonna care about my movie and we'll see you know with the thing having not yet premiered whether or not People are going to care about my movie. Um, it's filmmaking is a turkey shoot. You got to do it because you love it, and not because you, you know. After everything strange and new, people would come and they'd say, "So uh, you made a successful film. You know what? What advice do you have?" And I would say, "If you're on your deathbed and you have not made this film, will you feel like you failed?" If the answer is yes, then you should mortgage your house and. Do whatever you got to do to make your film. And if you throw away all that money, who yeah. cares? You did the thing you had to do. But if your answer is no, 
and you're doing it because you want to get rich and famous and get chicks, <laughs> then just don't do it because the chances are really slim. Yeah. You know, start a rock band. That's funny. I, I want to make my movie to get all the chicks. That's what we do it for. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like the that's like the joke. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get the seven picture deal and I'm gonna get laid by movie stars. Yeah, and that's, but that's that. the story that we hear. I mean, that's the story that gets put out there, and the people that are getting interviewed, like. That I feel like the the common filmmaker story that we're all hearing is the person who has made it, and and against all odds. And so I think naturally, when you're coming up as a filmmaker, you just think that that's how it happens. Especially right. if you get like a huge thing like getting into Sundance. I, right. I don't know what your feelings were going into Sundance, but if I had gotten into Sundance like ten years ago with with the film, I would have been like, well, my career is made. Here we go. Well, that's, I I totally thought that, and it turns out it's not true. <laughs> and there are multiple different uh, programs at Sundance, and my film was in the 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 program that they put the more interesting art film type films in. And distributors barely can be bothered to go see those films. So, what are they? Is there only like certain like categories that the distributors are interested in at a film festival like Sundance, or is it just like a kind of a luck of when you get programmed? Uh, well, the, there is the competition section at Sundance, and there are competitions in most of the major festivals. Certainly, Toronto, and I think they all pretty much have competitions. If you're in the competition section, that's basically for the films that have movie stars in them that are probably going to get distribution. Those are the films that that get sold. So if you look at Sundance over the past decades, most of the films that are in competition probably got sold. And most of the films that are in my category, which at the time I think was called Spectrum, um, those films mostly don't get sold because you know they're they're harder sells you know films that are that don't have stars and are content driven that's that's not what distributors are hungry for it's not a lot of money in that right right timothy you have any other questions about sundance or film festivals no i wanted to move on to the question what do you think it takes for an independent feature to be successful i have this thing i say that's both a joke and dead serious which is if you want to make a successful independent film, you've got to make a film that is unlike anything anyone has ever seen before and meets everyone's expectations. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's like an oxymoron, right? It is. Like uh, A good example of that, though, actually, is Napoleon Dynamite, mm -hmm. which is a stock American underdog story. It is n there's nothing new in the craftsmanship of that narrative. It is straight up American underdog story, but it has weird, quirky characters that are new and fresh and exciting. And you juxtapose the quirky characters onto the stock underdog story and everybody says, oh my God, I've never seen a movie like that before. And in fact, they've been seeing movies like that all their life. And so they have an intimate recognition of what they're looking at, but it's populated with a a group of characters they've never seen before and so they have a, a fresh right. experience of the genre i've i've heard it said that cre i don't know if it's creativity or just like doing something new is really just a matter of mashing two things that we know already up together that haven't been mashed together before well it's it's that's postmodernism. <laughs> there's, there's nothing new under heaven you're just in reinventing it in a way that can uh, can feel fresh yeah. yeah my art history teacher used to always say art is not created in a vacuum so if you look at any major piece of art it's always influenced by something that came before it yeah 
Right. Or, or I mean, you just take a, a, like you said, like put a new wrapper on it, you know, like take a story structure that we, we all know and love and that audience have responded to positively over the years and years. And then, yeah, put a different, different, different setting, right. different characters. It's different, like, you know. uh, Brick is a, is a traditional noir film, but set in high school. Right. I'm not, yeah. not saying and that no, we should all course. be going out making movies like that necessarily. But, <laughs> right. But, yeah. The question is, is that actually a, a, a great thing to do is that the thing that feeds your soul yeah i make films because film filmmaking feeds my soul you know rehashing what somebody else has done with some quirky characters does not feed my soul i I want to make meaning out of my world and i will never be a um a, a widely celebrated filmmaker because i just am not interested in making that kind of film and i'm i'm totally at peace with that i i'm never going to get rich at this game it's it's totally fine as long as I'm having a happy life. What I wonder, though, is if for like someone like Jared Hess, who, who directed Napoleon Dynamite, was that also feeding his soul? And was that also saying something relevant to him about his life and whatever? And I, and I would guess that it probably was, yeah, you know, but it just happened to do both, you know? Well, when I talked to him about that movie, he said that those were those were the people that he knew growing up, like that those were his family members, his friends, like he just kind of put his life into the film and that that was just influenced by the people around them so i feel like everyone grows up with their own perspective on things and you just kind of that feeds into you know what whatever art that you're creating in our case it's film and you're it's naturally going to want to come out and if i think if you're Ulrich had an example one time of a friend who tried to make the festival winning short, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, I'm going to do the formula. I'm going to like, if it's the formula we're talking about now, I'm going to take something and do it in a different way. If you don't feel anything about it, or if that's not like part of your world perspective, I think it comes across as false and it's, it's not right. real. And I think a good filmmaker, a good storyteller is always going to do something that's true to them, whether or not there's a huge audience for it or not. I think truth is what people are attracted to and that they want the authenticity and they want to feel like the person making that film is not just doing it for under false pretenses for money or fame or whatever, but because that's like something that's true to them, something that they just have to put out in the world. Right. Well, Jared Hess did make that as a, a, personal expression that was authentic to him but if i try to do that or someone else tries to (laughs) reinvent something based on a formula that they saw work for him that's not an authentic expression and that's not going to have the same resonance just as you were saying Um, i think napoleon dynamite was a great film i don't mean to diss on it i'm just trying to explain what it was that made it successful (laughs) right right there's been many people that have come after it that have tried to do what he did and it just it doesn't work the same way and the same things that could be said for quentin tarantino so many people have tried to write like quentin tarantino but only quentin tarantino can make it feel authentic because that's just his authentic self right an original voice is what what i strive for as a filmmaker and what i kind of think everyone should strive for as a filmmaker is an original voice that is all their own. But don't you think it takes time to find that, that at first, I, I don't know oh, if yeah, this is your does. case, but for my, in my case, I feel like I've had to um, a, put on, try the styles of other filmmakers that I admire and respect and see if I, if it feels right for me before I can like develop my own voice. I, I still, I think my voice is starting to come through more and more, mm-hmm. but it's hard to find it when you first start out. I think it takes like years yeah. and years and years of, of trying things out before you can really come out and be like, this is me. 
Yeah, I, I do a, a certain amount of teaching and something I always tell my students is, your first film is gonna suck. Your second film is gonna suck. Your third film is gonna suck. But your 11th film, that's gonna be great. And you have to make the 10 films that suck in order to get to the 11th film that is great. And that 11th film is the one where you now understand your voice and you understand your tool set and you can make a great film. Yeah, I I, I hear that though. And at the same time, I think about you know filmmakers that did not take 11 films to get it right. And I think everyone believes that they're that filmmaker. But I do I do believe that most people are the 11 film good people. I, I, I think the filmmaker that makes a first feature that is wildly successful that is a person with some good ideas. That is not a filmmaker. That person has a producer or a team of producers. They have a great DP. They have a great cast. They have highly skilled people who are actually doing the filmmaking for them. And they are just expressing their ideas and other people are running with those ideas. We're looking at you, George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> well, George Lucas... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what films George Lucas made before, but you, I mean, I'm, I'm working on a feature right now. I am completely at the mercy of the skill sets of the people that I've surrounded myself with. As a DP, without a focus puller who can keep it in focus, I'm a shitty DP. Right. Without a gaffer who can execute my lighting orders, I am a shitty DP. If, you know, at every level, a filmmaker needs highly skilled collaborators. And really anything less than highly skilled collaborators are going to get you a less than great looking film and a less than great film. Um, your cast, they, they have to be great. It doesn't matter how good a director you are if your cast is not good. So um, if you're new to the game and you don't actually understand your tool set intimately, you are very much at the mercy of your the people around you. And you might not know enough to choose highly skilled people to surround yourself with. Now, this is part of how I can make great films inexpensively as I have really great people surrounding me, very highly skilled people, and I really couldn't do it without them. Yeah, and just going back to what you were saying earlier about um, the first-time filmmaker, it's like, yeah, surrounding yourself with like really talented, great people, obviously, is one way to get it done. But I think in filmmaking, as we all know, there's just a lot of luck that comes into play. You know, and I think that sometimes those first films that are so amazing and so great and that we also respond to, I mean, yes, it was a great idea. Yes, like they, they, they developed a cool script and a great, a great script in, in a lot of cases, I'm sure, or most cases. But, uh, I think it's a lot of luck for all those pieces to fall in, in, into place that way. And you often see like great film, great films or filmmakers who made great first films. They sometimes don't get to those uh, heights again, you know, cause it was just that luck, that moment, mm -hmm. that timing that allowed them to make that special film at that time, you know? And then again, there's other ones who keep on doing it nonstop forever. And I think that's a really interesting point about like, that's not necessarily the filmmaker, you know, as the director on the first film, because they're still learning the filmmaking part of it, if if that's their first thing, you know? Yeah, in a way, you almost, there's a weird kind of advantage, disadvantage. If you know too much, then you're not free to do something fresh and interesting. And if you don't know enough, then you can't do something that's successful. So there is like a director who doesn't know much at all but is surrounded by people who can execute at a very high level, that's kind of a magic thing. The directors who don't know shit are people who are not likely to get that producer who can surround them with highly skilled people. But if they do, 
I mean, that's that's that first when you see a first feature at Sundance, a first film at Sundance. You know, that was a person who had some great ideas and they had an incredible team that they were surrounded by. Yeah, exactly. Timothy and I talk about this all the time, the whole thing about knowing too much. And I, I don't know if it's accurate for us, but we do say sometimes that we feel like we know too much now because it's hard for us to, to pull back and do things on a lower budget at having worked on things at a higher level where you see like the 30 person, 40 person crew and you're like, yeah, like that's what I want to make my movie. And it's like, okay, well, you're not going to be able to do that with $50,000 or even $100,000. Like, how are you going to make your movie? Like you have to scale back, get back to that place where you, when you first made your movies with like five to 10 person crews or less, you know? So, I mean, obviously for you, you've worked on big stuff too, but when you came to your movies, especially with your second movie, how do you approach making it? Like, do you, do you still somehow manage to get a 20, 30 person crew out there? Or have you been very selective in like pulling your crews back? Um, I don't want a 20 to 30 person crew. I've shot films as a DP with 20, 30, 40, 50 person crews. It's, it's, I don't like to work that way. I want a very small team of my very best people and my very good friends. And I write for that. I write a film that can be made at that scale. And we're highly efficient because we're such a small team and I can do it cheaply that way. So it's actually, it's, it's all part of my strategy is to have the smallest team that I can get away with given the ideas and what we have to execute. Mm -hmm. That's the the key it also is to write something that you know you can achieve with that that style of production. I think yeah, my my problem for a long time is just been, I I have it in my head that writing like you you don't have I don't want to handcuff myself when I'm writing something and so I end up writing these huge movies and they're impossible to produce now. And so I'm like sitting on a bunch of scripts that I can't even get made. I actually love the constraints. I love to think in terms of um, pragmatically about what I can do on a small budget because it, it's a, a challenge. It's, it's that like that metaphor where you like name something white and you're like, oh, white, oh, what's white? And you say name something white in a, in a kitchen and you're like, oh, a refrigerator. Like if you constrain yourself, you can think within that, those confines and it, it's strangely freeing to not be completely free. Nice. <laughs> like that. Strangely freeing to not be completely free. Yeah. Well, it's like if you tell somebody to draw a picture and, and they're like, well, what do you want me to draw it on? You're like, whatever you want. You know, what, what tool should I use? It doesn't matter. But if you give them like the tool and like a, a specific size of paper and they have to draw within that frame, it's much easier. It's like you, you can definitely paralyze yourself with too many options right yeah i can't afford too many options <laughs> right <laughs> well sometimes the solutions come easier that way when you're when you're limited you know because when you can find a solution with to anything and do anything then yeah where do you where do you start but if you're limited then it's like okay well what what can the solutions be because you have less options and you got to figure it out and sometimes it's easier that way mm -hmm. so fraser what is your ideal crew size yeah that's what i was going to ask <laughs> well it, it depends on the <laughs> It depends on the idea, but what the film is. Um, on the Deep Sky, we had a crew of 12 and then cast of somewhere between two and five people a day, depending on the day. That's kind of how I like it. I mean, you know, if, if it, it was a non-SAG film, if it had been a SAG film, we would have needed a second AD because SAG paperwork basically requires a person unto themselves. Um, and uh, other than that, I I really am not sure 
what other crew person I might have added. I think so, it was. Yeah, what's the, what's the yeah, breakdown on 12 break it people? Down, yeah. Let's see. All right, I'm going to have to think about this. There was me, there was so director. Jason Joseph, or my camera operator. Uh-huh. Um, there was my first AC. I'm, obviously, the camera department comes first in my head. Um, <laughs> and then there was a second slash data person. Okay. Um, and then there was my first AD, first and only AD. There was my gaffer and my key grip. There was. Um, one person doing hair and makeup. There was one of my producers was doing wardrobe. Um, there was location sound mixer and boom operator. Um, and there was a unit production manager. Nice. Pretty no, sure. no production yeah, no design art department. Or art department. Uh-huh. Oh, did I not say art department? No. Okay. So I did have two art department people. Oh, great. And so that, and they were not all the way that I, I structured it was I structured it so I didn't need everybody every day. So some days I had a full crew and other days I didn't have a full crew. So I, I probably averaged 12, but I guess you're, I guess I did have 14 people maybe. Nice. Hmm. I'd have to actually look at my That's crew a smart list. way to do it though, to yeah, look at your specific needs for the yeah, day. You can schedule a day where it's all exteriors and you aren't going to need G&E because you're running around town shooting mm-hmm. stuff on the streets in downtown San Francisco or something. Then... You know, you can save yourself a grip truck and two people that day. Yeah, right. And and no script supervisor? That's something that you just do without? You know, my particular... I, I don't recommend people not have a script supervisor, but the kind of movie I make um, doesn't have a ton of linearity in it. Um, when I broke it down for days, I had 52 script days. And I knew full well when I got into editorial that all those linear days were going to go to hell and I was just going to move shit around. And I did. And so there's really not a ton of consistency in terms of what is happening on any given day. And so if I'm in the ballpark, that's good enough for me. But audiences, they just don't pay attention to like, is somebody in the right wardrobe? You know, you can change wardrobe on a screen day and the, 99% 99% of the audience is not going to notice. Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. watching uh, Goodfellas recently after ha- having been a script supervisor on a movie and um, noticing continuity all over the place in some of my favorite scenes and being like, shit, I mm-hmm. never noticed that before. But like in one scene, he's got the sausage in his in, in on his fork, like up to his mouth, and then he cut away in a different shot, and it's not even there at all. And it's like, oh my gosh. Like I never even noticed that, but they just cut for the best performance, and I think that's what you'd always you should always be doing is always cutting for the best performance and the continuity stuff. Yeah, like you know, if it's a good performance, you're not going to see it. Yeah, the studio system really just doesn't care about continuity. You know, for for all the pretending to care that we do, and if you watch when I'm on airplanes, I'll often watch the screen on the headset in front of somebody else without sound and it's kind of crazy how sloppy they are that's funny <laughs> so on your first film i just i know this is kind of going backwards but i'm just curious like did you have the same kind of crew or was it bigger on the other movie on my first film i didn't even have a first ad um oh, which man, was the goodness. one thing i regretted <laughs> and i only had one person in the um, art department on that film so i think i probably must have had 11 or 12 people on that. Film. Wow. But the budget, well, I mean, we didn't actually talk about um, the budget for the big sky, but was it, is it about the same or was it smaller or? 
Uh, yeah, the deep sky. Deep, um, sorry, deep sky. It's okay. Excuse just, me. Just so the listeners aren't looking for the big sky somewhere. Yeah, use your I'm notes. I'm sorry. And I, I got it right earlier, and I was really proud of myself, and <laughs> it's now all I good. failed. Um, um, I'm sorry. What was the question again? Um, yeah, like the budget. Uh, was there a budget difference? Oh, the budget, yes. Well, things were different in terms of how much stuff cost when I shot Everything Strange and New. That was film. That was before digital cinema. Um, I've... You know, I, I was a film guy. I, I got into filmmaking because of what light looked like projected. I loved the aesthetics of film, and I was simply not interested in making a film in Betacam or whatever. I guess there was HD at the time, but it was um, it was expensive and not particularly good. In fact, it was actually really shitty um, at the time, and we were all like, "Oh yeah, it's great. George Lucas is using it. Go back and watch that movie again." <laughs> um, right. It was not a good time for digital days. technology. Um, so I shot film. So I had hard costs related to film and processing and transfer that were about $35,000, if I recall. So that's $35,000 I didn't have to spend this time. Um, now, I own a camera. I own a red package, so I didn't have to pay any rental on that red package. So and I also I owned a Super 16 package when I shot Everything Strange and New. So, you know, being a DP, I've already cut that out of my budget. Um, I've cut paying my DP out of my budget because I'm functioning as my own DP. Um, uh, but basically, the I also spent a lot more on my sound mix. We mix at Skywalker on everything strange and new, um, and I didn't have that luxury this time around. So uh, I saved some money there. So um, the total budget for the Deep Sky was a measly $95,000. Though, um, when I do a you know back of the napkin calculation, I think if if somebody else was to try to make that film, somebody who was not as decisive as I am and was not their own DP and their own editor and their own composer and one of their own producers, that it and you know and and if it shot as many days as it probably should have shot instead of the mere fourteen days of principal photography we did. Then it would probably come in close to two and two hundred fifty thousand. Wow! Yeah, hmm. fourteen days is not a long time. It's not a long time. What would what What is your ideal number of shoot days for a feature? Well, yeah, it depends on the script. If the script is, I mean, it depends on how the director likes to work. Mm-hmm. You know, on my films, I really don't shoot coverage. I, you know, if I know I'm going to have crossing coverage, I'm probably not going to shoot a master. And if I want a master, I'm probably not going to shoot crossing coverage. Um, I would say about half the scenes in the deep sky only have one shot. And the other half are just crossing coverage and no master. And, and is that just a style that, that you allows like you to, move to do faster. that way? You just prefer that visually? Yeah, that's it's how I think visually is I, I don't want a lot of options. I want the one thing that is exactly what I want, and that's all I want. And shooting, I, there were a couple of scenes where I did shoot um, masters when I didn't think I needed them, and I didn't use them because it just diluted the sense of what I wanted. Now, yeah. I'm, I have this very distinct advantage that I've been working as a DP for 20 years. Yeah, that's and what so I was going to say. The experience think, comes in handy. Yeah, I can think very visually, and that's not something that, you know, somebody who, who doesn't do that as a full-time job 
um, for 20 years has the luxury of doing. So that's, that's really to my advantage in terms of uh, cost benefit ratios is I can, yeah. I can be very decisive. I also don't shoot tons of takes. I will, I will get it right once and I'll be like, all right, it was great. We're moving on. Whereas a lot of directors want like, give me, give me some variety. Give me another one. Let's do one for safety. I, I don't do one for safety. I just do it. And when I'm done, I'm done and we move on. I don't, I don't advise anyone to be doing that. I'm not saying this is how I do it. You should do it this way too. When yeah. I'm a DP, I don't want to do it that way. Yeah, right. Because I want to protect the director and make sure the director's going to get what they want. So I right. want to shoot the coverage and I want to make sure we get the safety take. But in my own work, I feel very confident in what I'm doing and I uh, am willing to take a shot and just do it. So does that mean that 14 days is perfect for you? I would have taken 16. All but, right. You know, it's honestly, we, we had one day that went to 14 hours, regrettably. But all of the other shoot days were like 10 or maybe 11. Like we, I think maybe we had one other day when we hit 12, but we mostly were in the, I think we even had one that was nine. Nice. But, you know, shooting days were not, not brutal because I just shot the thing I wanted and we were done. And, and in that case, when you hit 14, um, are you paying all your crew overtime or are you just begging them and asking for forgiveness on set? I basically just asked them for forgiveness. Um, it, it helped that we were having really short days on all the other days. So when we finally did have a 14-hour day, they, uh, they let me have it. Uh, and, and really, like, having treat your crew well and love your crew because if they feel taken care of, they will take care of you. Like I sometimes work on, especially like corporate shoots where there's some producer who's an ass and <laughs> is just like gets off on being mean oh, to people. No. Like nobody is going to work hard for you, yeah. dude. You are just going to be, you know, your, your thing is only ever going to be good enough if you don't have your team all in giving you everything yeah. they can. I think, I feel like no matter personal project, corporate job, commercial, whatever. I think one of the jobs of a producer is just to take care of the crew and make sure that you're giving the crew what they need. And that includes making sure that they're happy and that they're having a good time, you know? Um, so I, I wonder what these producers are out there like, uh, <laughs> you know, being dicks to their crew for fun. Um, <laughs> I don't know how those yeah, people they can get be what they pay for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can pay people dirt and treat them with, respect and gratitude and they will give you great work but i was on a commercial job not too long ago and everybody was making full rate on this job it was a high-end job and i was over near the craft service table and i saw a couple of grips over there standing by it and they looked at the craft service table and they said dude this is bullshit and i was like <laughs> you don't want it get them some fucking craft service you know that's not expensive make those guys happy and they will work hard for you. But if you like don't have decent craft service, then they're going to be disgruntled and you know, it doesn't matter that you're paying them six fifty a day. Yeah. Nice craft service does go a long way for <laughs> sure. Um, so quick, quick thing. I, and this is something that's been giving me a lot of anxiety lately as a filmmaker. And I'm curious to know what your solution is for it. Um, but I've been kind of like looking for a producer to help me make my movie and like sort of be a partner with me on, on it. Um, do you have that kind of person that you like, like partner with, with your movie or do you just bring in a friend who's a producer to just help you get it done? Like, how do you, how do you work with and find your producers for your movies? 
Oh, it's different every time, I guess. Um, the first on everything strange and new, oddly. So I went down my list of all the producers that I knew, and they were all either too busy or not willing to work for what I could pay, um, or just like on vacation or something. There was some reason that nobody on my list could could do it with me. And I put a note on Craigslist, and I got a whole bunch of really BS replies. But I got a reply from a woman who was a real, honest to goodness producer and had just moved to the states from Uruguay, um, and she knew what she was doing, and she was great. And um, and I would have worked with her again, except that she had a baby and she was not going to come out and work on a feature when she had a three-month-old. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so, uh, so actually, I did call call in a friend to be my sort of producer, line producer, um, on-set guy. Um, and you know, I, I called some of my higher-level producer friends, and they were not available. And um, But I called a good friend, and he was awesome, and he totally did me solid, and I do not regret that one bit. And, and how early do you bring in your producer into your project? Do you do it like, do you already kind of have the whole shoot mapped out and then you bring them in? Or do you say, hey, I've got my funds, this movie's happening, um, you know, let's do this together. Like how, how much involvement does the producer have on the pre-production side? Well, best case scenario, your producer's going to find you that money and uh, right. do all that work for you. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, yeah, I did all the work of getting all the ducks in a row and then I pulled in a producer you know, at the, not the last minute, but, you know, toward the end, I had already crewed much of the rest of the crew before I actually finally found the, the nuts and bolts producer. Um, and then I ended up with another producer, Kari Borgia, who um, had never produced a film before. This is her first feature, but she knows everybody because she was the personal assistant to Tom Luddy, who founded Telluride Film Festival um, and um, interfaced with, uh, all kinds of filmmakers and producers and um, programmers and from, from all over the world at a very high level. Um, and she has always loved film and had never produced a film. And I reached out to her for help with something and um, she just fully engaged. And I was like, would you want to be a producer? And she said, I would love to. And that's been a godsend. So I, I have three or, or four, actually, four different producers on The Deep Sky. And each one has brought a particular thing that was something that the other ones couldn't bring. And did she come in after the movie was made during post-production or was she a part of it no, no, she, from the beginning? She came in. Uh, she came in about three weeks prior to production. I mean, we were already... You know, we were we were going no matter what, but she came in um, and she also is a fashion designer and she took on wardrobe, which was really great. Oh, that's awesome. Because then I had like suddenly I had a very highly skilled wardrobe person instead of like, you know, a, a, a shoddy wardrobe person probably being me. And so it kind of just sounds like from what you're saying is is build it and they will come, you know, and, and don't worry about not having all the things lined up beforehand, like do the, the dirty work yourself, do all the producing, line up your shoot, get everything going, like make it so it can happen and then start bringing in the, the people to, to help you finish it or help you actually make it, you know? I think that's, that's how I do it. Um, I, I know how to do all of that stuff. So the fact that I know how to do it is kind of key, but um, that's, yeah, build, build it and they will come, but you have to build it with the absolute assumption that the film is going to get made. You can't hedge your bets. You've got to, you got to make it regardless of whether anybody else shows up. 
Right. And they'll show up, but if you if you're waiting on somebody to show up then it's not going to happen. Right, right. I think like to me and and we've talked about this before on the podcast. It's like we always want this this person to come in and help us and and be our partner and and help us shepherd the project through and like you said, like help us find the money and help us do the whole thing. But I think we've all just, you know, Timothy and I have realized that there's there's no one coming no matter how hard you try to look and no matter what you do. Uh, and you just got to do it yourself and you've got to figure out that funding. You've got to figure out, um, how you're going to make your movie, where you're going to shoot it, shoot it, all the little things that you need to do. And then once you have it all planned out and perfectly wrapped up in a nice bow, then you can get the, the producer to come and, and join or the crew or whoever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You have to provide evidence to everybody else that you've got something <laughs> that's going to happen and here's their opportunity to get in on it. And if they think that, it might not happen, then they're going to hedge their bets against getting on. But if they think, shit, I better get in on this. This is going to be good and it's definitely going to happen. Then you've got a real advantage. Yeah. I feel like people can can also smell desperation. Yes. And so I feel like if you go into a situation and you're just like, this is happening with or without you. Do you want in? And if they're like, no, you're like, great. Well, thanks for listening. But the, if they feel that energy, I think more often than not, people will say yes because they do feel like, oh, this is going to happen. Yeah, they can smell success just as well as they can smell desperation. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so you were talking about how it takes 11 films before you really find your voice. And you've directed two features. Do you feel like you have a voice without having directed 11 features? Or do you feel like short films are a good way to do that? Or a professional career is a good way to find your voice? Like, how can you do it without having to make 11 films? You can't do it without having to make 11 films. I made two features. I've made probably 70 shorts. Some of them <laughs> oh for gosh. hire. Some of, I made 13 films before I graduated wow. from film school. There you go. So you've put in the time. I've made a lot. And I and the fact that I'm a DP is a different, but it, it gives me a different kind of advantage. It's like every time I shoot a film, that's like making a third of a film. So I get, I have this deep perspective about production because I do it as my job. Yeah. I kind of feel mm-hmm. like just being on set of a film, whether whatever your role is, you definitely get a little bit of that experience rubbing off on you, mm-hmm. you know, um, even the stuff that I was like PAing on, I feel like I've taken, taken things away from it, you know, um, definitely DPing. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, I think I got what you said, a third. I like that. It's like, yeah, I made third of a film yeah. as a DP. Yeah. Right. Yeah. feels yeah. right. <laughs> One of the nice things about being a DP is that you are right there with the director and the actors on set. And so when the director's giving them direction, you get to hear it. They might do some rehearsal without you, but, I, I get to see directors direct and I've learned a lot of tricks and I've learned a lot of things not to do. And I've seen directors succeed and fail and succeed and fail on grand scales. So, uh, you know, I, I, as, as much as I know what to do, I know what not to do. So do you recommend for anyone who wants to be a director just to like, just make a bunch of stuff however you can? And just get it all out of your system? Yeah, no, get, make as many films as you can, as fast as you can. And you will learn a tremendous amount from each film you make. And if you can get on set and watch other people make films, that's all the better. But yeah, just mm-hmm. make films, you know, make, get out there with your friends and just churn them out and don't expect them to get into Sundance. Just make them because you love making them. <laughs> and that that 11th film is going to be really good because you made the 10. Yeah. 
That's awesome. I've seen a lot of people try to make the first film be great, and the first film's never great because the people who are trying to make the first film great are usually trying to do everything they ever wanted to do in one film, and it's too much, and it's... You know, no person can really do that. I still think that every movie you make, you should try to make great. And I mean, I definitely, I see what you're saying, because a lot of people take that and then they just never finish a movie. They work on it for like 10 years, five years, two years, and then it just Mm -hmm. sits on the shelf. So that's not what I'm talking about. But I feel like whatever you do, you should be trying everything that you can to make it as great Mm -hmm. as as you possibly can, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to make it great, but your expectations should be that... I'm going to make 10 films. Like, don't decide I'm going to make a film. Decide I'm going to make 10 films. Right. And make 10 films instead of making one film. And then your expectations for the 11th film can be quite grandiose. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, Timothy, do you have anything else you want to ask specifically? I have a kind of a a forward-thinking question. No, go ahead. Um, You know, so now you've made your second feature. You've made, yeah tons and tons of shorts and you've worked on tons of other features so now that the big sky is is done um what what's the next sorry deep sky <laughs> deep i was sky. like i swear i got I it was right gonna let time. it go this time <laughs> no please you should never let it go uh that, that's like someone calling my movie um weird thing and not strange thing um so yeah anyways uh yeah what's next man like what what are you looking to accomplish on your next movie and, and like basically you know you, you took kind of a big uh break from the last feature you directed to this feature are you do you like that kind of break or are you like hungry to go out there and just do it again next year um i didn't take that break on purpose i took that break because i thought well it should be easy for me to make a second film because i made the first film and it wasn't i i found a producer who was highly skilled and was very much an up-and-comer um, and i had a script that i gave him that we were going to make and he took it to the Sundance Producer Summit and kind of had a speed date pitch session with um, 10 different production companies. And nine of them said, this sounds great. We want to see the script. Um, and he sent it to all of them. And he sent it to a handful of other um, developers and um, production companies. And at the end of the day, they all came back and said, well, this is really interesting, but it's like the main character dies halfway through we're we're just not really sure what to do with this and make it <laughs> and i'm and like so, so i basically spent four years trying to make a film that nobody was willing to to take a chance on because it was too big a chance um it's interesting and, and then i woke up one morning and i was like you know fuck this and i started writing the deep sky started writing a film that I could make for $65,000 for production. And that was, in fact, my production budget. And then I did a Kickstarter campaign for the, to pay for the rest. Oh, okay. So you did do a Kickstarter to, to, to raise some of the money. Yeah, that's yeah. hell. I do not recommend doing a Kickstarter <laughs> campaign. It's basically like, how can I trick all of my friends and how can I guilt trip all of my friends and family <laughs> into giving me money? It's like the, the Kickstarter business model is like, hey, why don't you milk all your friends and family for money and give me some of it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I like, I really like, I felt a little like, I'm sure a lot of my Kickstarter supporters are going to hear this and, um, and don't worry, I love you. But I did feel like at a certain point I had become a person that I didn't want to be. 
in terms of trying to get people to give me money who I, why should they give me money? Like I'm, right. I'm their friend, but they don't, it's not their responsibility to finance my film. Right. Um, and I'm like, so I've got this momentum of the Kickstarter campaign and I'm able to twist arms to get people to give me some money. And I don't feel good about that. But I am <laughs> right. also deeply grateful for the support. I, I mean, I, I would cry when I would look at the list of people who were supporting me and when people would give me more money than I expected and I would feel so moved. Um, yeah. And I, I thanked every single person. Well, we've both been through Kickstarters, so we, we know we know the deal. Timothy raised an incredible amount of money on Kickstarter, so oh, congratulations. he's been to, to hell and back, um, you know. Thanks. And, uh, it's embarrassing now. Like, at the time, I felt really proud about it, but now that I've been doing this podcast and talking to filmmakers like you who say things like, yeah, I made a, a feature film for $95,000, and then I look at, I made a 20-minute short for 96000 Actually, probably more like a hundred, fifteen, hundred twenty thousand. Once I put my own money into it, um, I'm just kind of like, why? Why did I do that? Why? Why didn't I just go make a feature? Yeah, Stupid. I almost feel that way of making like my two shorts or or three shorts, spending over sixty thousand <laughs> right. dollars across right. three short films, and being like, God, what a moron! But at the time, I thought it was the right move. It felt like, oh, this is going to cue me up for that f- feature. Like somehow in my head, I had built up like this is the right path for me to take. Well, that right. is the that is the myth. Yeah, that, yeah. That that's gonna. And shorts are such a weird thing because a short does not stand alone. A short plays in a program of shorts, or it plays before a feature, and there is no there is no standing alone. So yeah, right. I made a short a few years ago, and my producer got it to a the director of a major film festival, I won't name the festival or the, um, the director, but the director wrote him an unsolicited email response and said, oh my God, I never see shorts. And the shorts programmer said, you have got to see this film. And I watched it and oh my God, it is so good. And it just doesn't go with anything in our festival. And I'm so sorry we can't play it. Ah, uh, tough. And I was like, well, fuck that. I'm not making shorts anymore. But I still do. I just have realistic expectations that nobody's going to play them. Right, right. Yeah, I'm I'm in that boat right now. I just, I'm at the tail end of getting uh, film festival responses. And uh, yeah, guess what? They're all, den- they're all rejections. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's getting rejections is part of the game. Oh, yeah. You know, everything Strange and New played Sundance, and then I got rejections from festivals that were wow. certainly not anywhere nearly as prestigious as Sundance. That's interesting. I always just thought that once you got into Sundance, and you just get into everything like automatically. <laughs> no, unfortunately, that is not the case. Right. <laughs> well, the one thing I wanted to say about <laughs> our, our Kickstarter woes or our short film woes is that just to your point earlier, you know, like those movies, like we had to make those movies to become the filmmakers that we are today. Yeah, and I feel yeah, like absolutely. it's worth the, the investment and and all the time and energy because now I think whatever we make next, you know, will will be that much better for it and that much closer to you know like what we're trying to actually say with our with our filmmaking you know right and the fact that you guys are actually like going out and talking to other filmmakers and getting perspective that that counts as making films in a way because it gives you the same kinds of perspectives that you get from making those 10 films so you know you get to make two or three fewer films because you've talked to a bunch of other people 
who have given you perspectives. Like that's super valuable. And that's more advice for, for the kids is go talk to people who make <laughs> yeah, movies. Like we love advice. to talk about what we do. We will talk about ourselves all day long. Yeah. So just ask. I, I will you know, literally go, go out to coffee with anybody who ever emailed me <laughs> if, if they did. Yeah. And, and you know, they, they rarely do, but when they do, I definitely go. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, whenever I can find, if somebody reaches out to me, if I have time, I will, I will give it to them. I don't always have time just, you know, so, so that everybody, I'm not going to get, you know, an email from every single person who listens to this podcast, but I, I do at the very least, I try to respond briefly and say, gosh, I'm so busy, but I wish you the best of luck. Yeah. Right. Or what, here's one piece of advice that I think might help you in your certain circumstance, you know, good luck or something. Um, Yeah, well, I just I just end up sending episodes of the podcast. I'd be like, actually, we've talked about idea, this on the actually. podcast. Here, listen to episode yeah. one hundred three. Right, yeah. I've done the work for you. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. funny. Yeah, I just I kind of feel like it's it's really great that we can get filmmakers like you on the show because like the knowledge is now not just yours. It's not just ours. It's there for everybody, and now everyone can go out and learn from from what we've done, you know, and what we've talked about, and and what we've experienced. You know, and hopefully take yeah. it onto their movies and, 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 you know, yeah, have a chance yeah. to make something great or as close to their, their inner filmmaker's voice as they can, you know? Yeah. Making films is an incredible privilege. This is not a birthright. And I, and I would love to share this, the, the power of this privilege with as many people as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, I wish I wish you all the best of luck, and uh, and to find great people to help you. Cool. Well, Ulrich, is it time for the final five? Uh, yeah, I think it is time for the final five. This is I just made this doing. name up. The final five. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah. Do you want to do it, Timothy? You want to? Yeah, like, I'll do it. So, like, this is uh, Fraser. This is something that like I've been dying to do on the podcast for a while, and yeah. I, I'm just starting to implement it now. It's um, kind of like at the end of Inside the Actor's Studio, he has like a list of questions that he goes through. And it's like kind of fun to hear different filmmakers answer these different questions. So I, 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 we're, we're trying to come up with these five questions to ask every filmmaker that comes on the podcast. So this is work in progress. You're, you're a guinea pig to, to kind of see how this works. Um, but yeah, here it goes. I, what I want you to do is answer these questions as succinctly as you possibly can. Try to keep it to like two or three sentences at most. Okay. Okay. So the first one is, David Fincher says that you're doing a pretty good job if you can get 70% of what you want on a film set. Do you agree with that? And if so, what percentage are you getting from your films right now? Uh, so you get me on these like this is long philosophical ramblings. <laughs> I'm going to try not to go on. Um, I believe that you should go into any shot, any day, any whatever, knowing exactly what you want and being prepared to throw it all away because you find something different when you get there. So, uh, getting 70%, yeah, maybe you get 70%, but you might get something way better than that seven, that if the hundred percent that you want might not be nearly as good as the 70% that you get. Mm -hmm. Uh, interesting. Okay. So number two, uh, what's the thing that you struggle with the most as a filmmaker? Uh, I hate to write. Uh huh. <laughs> I think we can all relate to uh, that. Yeah, I, I just have to laugh at that one. Uh, number three, if you could travel back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? 
Um, it's the piece of advice that I give to my students on the first day of class is I say, you all think you know how to make a film and you know how I know that because I used to be you. And guess what? You don't have any idea how to make a film. If I could realize that I had no idea how to make a film when I was in film school, I would have become a better filmmaker a lot faster. Interesting. Okay. Number four, do you, this is Ulrich, so maybe you need some clarification, Ulrich, uh, but do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Like, do you mean like a, a life goal? No, like or? a specific goal. A specific as a filmmaker like is there something that you're trying to achieve as in your filmmaking over the lifetime of your of your filmmaking career or however you take it it could be in a specific okay. movie or over your lifetime or whatever yeah uh, I want to make work that creates new cinematic language and creates meaning in the world I think it's as simple as that I want to do something that is original and I want to do something that is meaningful and I've heard it said, and I can't remember who said it, that a good film, a great film, begins when the credits roll. I want to make films that begin when the credits roll. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Last yeah. question. Is making movies hard? Um, it's, it's the hardest artistic medium there is, and that's why I'm interested in it, because the difficulty of executing a film is directly related well actually let me let me start that over um the medium of film is inherently powerful and there is a reciprocal relationship between powerful and difficult and that's exciting to have that challenge nice i love it that's a great i answer. love these questions yeah they're good so far, two two times doing it, we've gotten some really interesting responses. So. Yeah, unfortunately, this cool. is this episode's coming out first. I think. Oh, really? The, the episode that comes out next week. I don't know. We have to decide. But oh, right. I already did this with one filmmaker, and I said you're the first. But it's actually in the sequence of these podcasts coming out. They'll be the second. <laughs> right. Whatever. People will figure it out. It's fine. It's yeah. not going to make anyone's head explode. I don't think it should be. Yeah. No. But the cool thing is, is like hearing you answer these questions and hearing the other filmmaker answer these questions already. Like there's differences and it's really cool to hear. I do have to like kind of bite my tongue and, and not like respond because I, it does like almost open up new conversations to be had. Right. Yeah, totally. But I kind of like it. it, it it's it, it's the same thing the, you're just saying. It's like we're ending the podcast with like a bunch of new stories that we could have gone into. That's actually <laughs> the, the kind of great thing about talking about film is the reason we make film is because we want to talk about things that are big. Um, and this is a, a way to, to talk about the talking about of the things that are big. It's like a it's a, a gateway drug to make movies. <laughs> yeah. And I think hopefully <laughs> yeah. it, it provides answers for people, you know, and, and if not answers, like at least some sort of comfort that, you know, you don't have to have all the answers to go out to make a movie. Like you just need to go out and make your movie. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, right. the answers will hopefully come if you're doing the right things. Yeah. Or you'll just never have all the answers. Yeah. No matter how much you've done it, you'll never actually have which, all I, which I think is kind of exciting about it right is that it's always a new problem to solve there's always something new new challenge to overcome because you're never going to know everything you know well it's exciting to me now but when I was younger it was frustrating because because I'm a perfectionist and I want to have complete control over things learning that I didn't have control of, of filmmaking was probably the hardest lesson I've had to learn and I'm like just now coming to peace with it 
there's this Zen saying that I'm very fond of um, that is, if you do not understand the path as it meets your eyes, how can you know the way that you walk? Mm. And I think that's really filmmaking is about looking at what's in front of you and knowing what to do with it. Understand mm -hmm. your tools and your team and your materials and your story and your actors and make them um, ready to do their best work. Well, that seems like a pretty good way to end it, right, Timothy? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a great ending. So where can people find your work? Where, where can they find you, your website, Twitter, Facebook, email? What do you want to share with people? Oh, I'm, uh, well, you can, you can watch everything strange and new on various streaming platforms. It's on Amazon, it's uh, on iTunes, it's on Google Play, um, and it's on Vimeo On Demand. Um, you can also check out FraserBradshaw.com, which is spelled F-R-A-Z-E-R, -E and then Bradshaw is like it sounds. Um, and you can see some of my shorts and my experimental work um, under the Films tab. Um, and hopefully... Uh, uh, the deep sky will be available to see somewhere soon at a festival near you. And, and is it, do you have a date for the, the premiere yet? Yeah. Is it already scheduled? It's uh, playing Mill Valley on October 7th at uh, 915. And then again on Monday, October 9th at 845. That's just nice. around the corner. It is just around the corner. Yeah. I'm going to wrap exciting. the feature I'm on and I'm going to oh, get wow. back the night before my film premieres. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll try to make it. I think I'm going to be in town those days, or at least one of those days. So I'll, I would love to come. I mean, I've, I've heard so many good things about okay. the Middle Valley Film Festival also, so I've been meaning to go. Um, yeah, it's a special film festival. It's a it's a, a gem. It's, you know, it, it's arguably the best festival in California. Wow. Holy schmoly. Now, somebody that... will argue with me about that. but <laughs> That's why it's arguably. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's, that's, that's cool. some fighting words over there. Right, they but get... they, they play a lot of films that come out of Cannes, and they play a lot of films that come out of Toronto. Um, I feel very lucky to be in that company. And a lot of films that come out of Telluride, too. Oh, nice. That's great. Well, Excellent. we wish you the best of luck, and we're excited to see it. All right. Well, very good. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and sharing all this. This was fun. It was really a pleasure to talk to you guys. Yeah, yeah thanks, yeah, Frazier. Indeed. We finally right. made it happen. It's awesome. I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so everyone, check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you're going to find links to all the stuff that we talked about. All of Frazier's films will be on there and links to his website, so you can check that stuff out. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook with the handle at MMIHpodcast. And as always, if you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, whether or not you write anything. Um, you know, we love, we love to read the reviews, but even just the stars are great. We just like knowing that there's people out there listening to it. So thanks again, guys, and uh, everyone out there listening, we'll talk to you next week.